0: I ask you to take your Bibles this afternoon and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and I would direct your attention to verse 20, which is a fairly well-known verse. Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into to him and will sup with him and he with me. The title of our sermon is Fellowship with Christ. The word fellowship and the word communion are often used interchangeably as synonyms. Uh, they both refer to giving and receiving. To have fellowship, to have communion, is to be engaged uh, in giving and receiving. It describes nearness. It describes closeness, togetherness, if you will. But we understand and should understand that, that union results in communion. Union comes first. There has to be unity or union in order for there to be Communion. And that communion, therefore, presupposes that there is already union. So we think in terms of the believer's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, the believer is brought into union with Christ. Brought into union with Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith. And having that union with Christ, fellowship, communion, flows from that. The believer can hold fellowship with the Lord and have a share in Christ's graces and a share in his sufferings and in his resurrection and in his glory. There's fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, we can think in terms of the relationship of believers. The individual believers are brought into union and therefore communion with Christ. And as a the consequence, they're brought into union and communion with one another. And so there's union with one another in love. And that unity results in communion. Communion and the share in each other's gifts. And a share in each other's graces, which serve to the edification, the building up of the body and people of of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this concept of communion and of fellowship. We often... I think, um, associate fellowship with food, right? We'll speak about having a fellowship meal. And in one sense, we can push back from that and say, well, that's, a, that's a, you know, pushing us in the wrong direction, pulling us in the wrong direction. But in another sense, there's something actually helpful there to think about a fellowship meal. If we realize that food is only the context, food is the occasion on which fellowship takes place. Fellowship is actually found more in the conversation around the table than in the food itself. But in many ways, actually the table provides, I think biblically, in an ideal place for fellowship. You know, there's giving and receiving in terms of food, but it's an ideal context for real spiritual fellowship to transpire, which takes place in Conversation and and mutual service, and I say that because you think biblically, right? In the Old Testament, there was the peace offering. There's this picture of fellowship with God, where a meal is is uh, the, the 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 Israelites would eat a meal in the presence of God, you know, at the tabernacle, and so on. Or you think of how the Lord ordained feasts as part of the Old Testament calendar, occasions on which there was communion with God and the ordinances that he's He's given to us. Or you think of, you know, the way in which Christ dis- discloses his glory uh, on occasions like the feeding of the 5,000, or we think of the Lord's Supper, right? We refer to the Lord's Supper, rightly, as communion. The Bible describes it that way in 1 Corinthians, right? There's communion taking place at the Lord's Supper between the believer and christ there are heavenly transactions by the spirit this giving and receiving that is taking place to the nourishment of the soul of the believer and we think even of the last day last day you know the description of the marriage supper of the lamb sitting down with abraham isaac and jacob our fathers in the kingdom of god and so forth so these are biblical pictures so it's not inappropriate for us to think along those lines but it's with the aim of getting us to think clearly about the concept of fellowship it has to originate in union with Jesus Christ if we haven't been brought by the Holy Spirit through faith into union with Christ there can be and never will be any fellowship with him spiritual fellowship with him and likewise uh, with with one another and so we come now, then, to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and we're venturing into the field of Christian experience this afternoon. Right? We're coming to a theme that relates to Christian experience. So we read in the course of the service, you'll have noted, we read for our Old Testament reading, Song of Solomon chapter 5. And then we read for our New Testament reading, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. We did that intentionally, of course, Because these serve as a background and should be combined with what we find in the language of our text here in Revelation 3, verse 20. And indeed, they they cast mutual light, illuminating what we are to understand about the language that's given to us in Revelation 3 and verse 20. We'll seek to flesh out with the help of these other passages uh, the picture that is given to us. So our theme is fellowship with Christ. First of all, we begin with readiness. So first of all, readiness. And I'll explain what that means. Our text says this, Behold. In other words, you know, see, look at this, you know, pay attention, see this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I stand at the door and knock. We know the picture. It's familiar to us, children. You know, you have a neighbor, a family member, some friend from church. They come up to the house, through the driveway, up onto the porch. They knock on the door. You know what that means. You have a friend who's knocking on the door. They want to see you. They want to speak to you. They want to give something to you. They want to spend time with you or whatever the case is. So you have the picture. It's familiar to us. What it's describing for us in these opening words is Christ's readiness. His readiness to hold fellowship with his people. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Indeed, this, I think, opens for us a little the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for his bride. It's showing us his heart that he longs for, that he loves, that he cherishes, that he's eager and anticipating and ready to hold fellowship with his people in love. He stands and he knocks. Now, what makes these words especially remarkable are the context in which they come to us. Because this is Jesus Christ speaking to a particular people in the first instance. And those people are the church at Laodicea. He's speaking to the church at Laodicea. Those whom he himself described as neither hot nor cold, but rather lukewarm, and whom he would soon spew out of his mouth. You look at the context of their great sin, verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The words of verse 20 come into the, in the context of great sin. Provocations against the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of their unbelief, disobedience, worldliness, and so on and so forth. And so Christ points it out in very plain, sharp words. And he then calls them to repentance. Right? In verse 18, going into verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. And so he's calling them to repentance. Right? What's happening here? there has been a breach in fellowship. Because of their unrepentant sin, because of their provocations, because of their lukewarmness, because of their delusion of thinking of themselves as great and secure and strong, when in fact they were wrecked and spiritually empty and bankrupt and so on, the Lord is calling them to turn from sin to himself. And so the context is one Of a breach of fellowship. There's distance. There's coldness. There's not closeness and intimacy and warmth and affection and nearness with the Lord. Their sin has created a breach. And so he rebukes them. And he chastens them. In order to bring them to their senses. And to bring them to repentance, to bring them to turn away from all of their sin and to turn toward himself, to come to him, to flee to him, to run to him, to be near to him. Now, why is the Lord Jesus Christ doing this? It reinforces what I've already said because it reveals the heart of Christ. He delights in the fellowship that he has with his bride. He delights, he himself, takes pleasure in the communion that he has with his bride, his people, his believing people. And so he will not leave them in those circumstances. He'll arouse them. He'll he'll call them. He'll bring them, draw them to himself in order that that fellowship might be restored, that fellowship might be preserved, that fellowship might be sweetened and deepened And expanded. Well, this is great news in so many respects. It's great in terms of taking us below the surface of answering questions like, what am I supposed to do? Right, I've been cold, I've been distant, I've been distant from the Lord, whatever. You know, I've got these sins and so on. What do I do? Well, we have answers to that. The Lord says to them, repent. You know, you're to repent. But the Lord has actually taken us below that, and he's actually supplying his church with motives to repent, not just the what to do, but why to do it and the how of doing it. He's supplying supplying us with motives to repent. The motives are obvious. Christ is showing his heart to his people. Christ is coming and saying, this is who I am. I'm the one who stands, I'm the one who's at the door. I'm the one who's knocking. Why? Because I'm the one who delights in fellowship with those whom I've come to redeem. Indeed, the whole reason that he's come to save sinners and to bring them to a saving knowledge himself is to reconcile them unto himself, unto God, in order that their sins might be forgiven and they might be restored to friendship and fellowship with God in this world but ultimately in glory what is glory right? glory is basking in the presence it's to be where christ is it's to be with him it's to behold him it's to be near him it's to have continual perpetual sinless eternal fellowship with the triune god in christ jesus that provides hope of mercy if the lord stands and he's expressing readiness for us to receive us, that he's expressing delight in the fellowship that is to be had with the believer, that he is discontent with the breach, which is entirely on our side due to our own sinful provocations. That draws out the heart to turn, it draws out the heart to flee, it draws out the heart with hope of mercy. The Lord stands. Believer, the Lord stands at your door. He stands at your door with an invitation to fellowship. This is the heartthrob of what it means to be a Christian. The Christian delights in the service of God, obedience to God, devotion to God, the fear of God, everything else, because of their love. They love him. The believer loves Christ and therefore keeps his commandment. Loves Christ, therefore worships him. Loves him, therefore serves him. Loves him, therefore lives for him. And if needed, dies for him. It's love. And what is it that keeps the Christian in terms of their watchfulness against sin? Temptation arises. And it's tantalizing. Pleasures are set before the eye dangled before the eye. And the Christian, when the Christian is in a good place, looks at that and says, I would have to exchange for that the loss of a sense of nearness, of intimacy, of fellowship with my Savior. Get your garbage out of my face. I'm not giving that for this temptation. I don't want breach with the Lord. I don't want to be distant from him. I don't want coldness. I want all of the warmth and depth and love and intimacy that is to be had for him, had with him. And so there's a readiness, a readiness on Christ's part. He's standing. He's at the door. He's knocking. There's a readiness to hold fellowship with his people. There's also the readiness of the believer. So if you take what, what amounts to similar language in Luke chapter 12, though applied uh, to a different context, It's speaking about anticipation of the Lord's return, etc., but it's, it's the same or similar language. It still helps flesh out something here with regards to this text, because there is to be on the believer's side a readiness as well. You go to that Luke chapter 12 passage, and you'll, you'll notice the language there which is applicable here. We can extrapolate and use it. Verse 35, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning and you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord. When he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Right? So the language here is that of watchfulness. Watchfulness. And it's, it's applicable. It's applicable in terms of the picture given to us in Revelation 3, verse 20. The loins gird about, right? The, the idea of being suited, you know, dressed, everything tightened down, ready to roll, ready to run. The light is burning, right? Everything is prepared to go, waiting for the Lord. So it's watchfulness. And so here are the servants that are girded. We'll come back to this. The servants are, are girded for action. The result as a consequence is that their Lord girds himself. Verse 37, Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. The servants are waiting and watching and the Lord comes ready and knocking and so this watchfulness, this, on the believer's side, vigilance, alertness, attentiveness, in the language of Solomon, keeping the heart with all diligence, right? That's, the, that's what's being pictured, and the loins girded, and the lights, the lights burning. There's a watchfulness on the believer's part, watchfulness against sin, watchfulness over grace, watchfulness for Christ, the watchfulness for his coming and going, and all that is related to it. Right? This is preparation, readiness, preparation for fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ stands ready to hold fellowship with his people constantly. The believer is also to put themselves in a watchful frame. You know, we come up to the house of God in public worship, you know, twice in the Lord's Day, Wednesday night, other occasions as they're provided, family worship, private worship, times of Stated prayer, times of meditation, times of reading, study, reflection, whatever it is. We come under these means, we employ these means in a state of readiness to have fellowship with Christ. We're expectant, we're, we're, we're looking for it, we're longing for it, and our expectation Is based on his readiness. I know that the Lord stands at the door. I know that the Lord knocks. And so when I sit down under the preaching of God's word, when I sit down under the reading of God's word in some secret place where no one else can see, I'm expecting to have fellowship with him because I know of his readiness to do so. That when I open the book, And I'm just going to, my eyes aren't going to just pass over the words on a page. I'm going to meet with Christ himself. And he's going to draw near to me. He's going to show me himself. He's going to make my heart burn within me. He's going to speak into my world. That in prayer, he's going to draw me out and give me liberty and help in prayer. A sense of his presence. He's going to give the spirit To enable me to pray in the Spirit so that my mind is praying in accord with His will. Have a sight in prayer of His glory and a fellowship with Him. And now take that and apply it to whatever else. You know, under the preaching, I'm expecting Christ to come. He's ready and I've come watchful. And He's going to bring a word to me. And I got all sorts of things going on in the background. But I know that the Lord's going to give the word I need. And it may be at times that we're expecting one thing. And the Lord says, that's not what you need. I'm going to give you what you need, not what you think you need. And he'll speak to us in ways we didn't anticipate either. And thanks be unto his name when that's the case. But the point is, in terms of fellowship with Christ, the first thing described here is his readiness, even against the backdrop of sin and provocation. Secondly, there is responsiveness. Secondly, there's responsiveness. If any man hear my voice and open the door. So here's responsiveness. If any man hear my voice and open the door, so there's two things that need to be distinguished: hearing his voice, and then opening the door. These are both indicative of a response responsiveness. Why is this important to distinguish them? Because you can hear his voice and not open the door. You say, Well, how do we know? We know because it's described for the, the Christian in Song of Solomon, chapter 5. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops. Of the night the response of the bride I have put off my coat how shall I put it on I have washed my feet how shall I defile them she hears the voice she's sleepy right she's asleep she hears the voice he's standing at the door he's saying open to me I am ready for fellowship but there's an absence of responsiveness no no and excuses begin, right? One excuse after another excuse after another excuse. You can multiply others here, right? It's not practical. You know, I'm already situated. I'm comfortable. I've put off my clothes already. I can't get dressed again. I've washed my I'm going to get dirty walking across the floor, and so on and so forth. But the point is there are excuses to put off Christ, excuses to deny Christ his invitation to hold fellowship with him. You notice again Christ's readiness, right? The first point. Because here in verse 2 it says, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, my head is filled with dew, locks with the drops of light. All of this is expressive of readiness, of eagerness, of expectation, of desire and delight to hold fellowship with the bride, with the Christian. Christ is ready. And yet nevertheless, despite his desire and delight, There is an unwillingness to respond. Yes, I've heard his voice. Yes, I've heard the call. Yes, I see the invitation. But laziness, disinterest, distractions and diversions, selfishness, worldliness, unbelief, and a million other things prevent the believer from responding. Right, his, his description, him saying, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, and so on and so forth. I mean, these things should motivate watchfulness. They should motivate the sort of thing that we see in, in Luke 12, the state of readiness, the state of attentiveness, of desire. It should, it should motivate responsiveness. And indeed, going back to Revelation 3, it should motivate repentance, zeal for Repentance, right? That's the language of verse 19. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. But instead in Song of Solomon 5, it is, I sleep. I've put off my coat. Notice, are you connecting the dots here? I hope you are. I've put off my coat is the opposite of I have girded my loins. In Luke 12. Rather than being girded up with the lights burning, I'm asleep, unclothed, with the lights out, as it were. I've washed my feet. And so the point is delay. He puts his hand in the door. I'm not, I'm not preaching Song of Solomon 5 this, this, this afternoon, but you, you can see the parallels here. There's delay. Verse 5, I rose up to open to my beloved. My hands dropped with myrrh, my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh, Upon the hand of lock, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. She had quenched, she had sinned away the privileges given to her, and the Lord rightly withdraws himself. He withdraws the sensible, his sensible presence so that there isn't an awareness of nearness and affection and love and intimacy and all those other things that come with it. Christ withdraws Himself, and so it's a warning about responsiveness, isn't it? We hear the Lord speaking to us through His Word. We hear the Lord coming for us and calling to us. In fellowship with Him, the Lord can lay burdens on us to, you know, with things that we should be praying about or a sense of urgency to pray. He said, well, not now. I'm busy. Other things I'm interested in. And then we go back later. It's all cold. It's dead. It's distant. Icy. Can't find him. That's what happens in the Song of Solomon 5. She goes out and she's searching everywhere. She can't find him. She's calling for him and there's no answer. She's looking for him and she can't discover him. Isn't this the case in terms of Christian experience for the Lord's people? We find ourselves in similar circumstances. There's not a responsiveness. We hear the voice, we don't open the door. And then after a bit, we think, okay, I should open the door. And he's gone. And we come under under the ordinances and the heavens are brass. Our prayers can't seem to penetrate the ceiling. No sense of reception before the throne we open the book and it's like dead letters to us we're untouched we can't find him we can't get a sense of nearness to him we come under the preaching and you think i'm not getting a word i'm not hearing the voice of the lord there's an absence a a palpable absence things seem dead and empty preachers off today is he? Or is it we that are off? This is why we're to not only be hearers of the word, but doers. We can hear the voice at the door. And not be a doer, not opening the door. Right? That's what James 1. Hearers of the word, not doers of the word. Without being doers of the word. It's what Jesus is getting at, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The one building their house on sand. The one building their house on the rock. The difference is the man who built his house on the rock was the one who heard and did the will of the Lord. The other's house collapsed under the storms. So there's a responsiveness here in Revelation 3 verse 20. If any man hear my voice and open the door. So it's a call to open, right? You go back again to the, the positive example in Luke chapter 12 and the language that's 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 used there is the exact opposite isn't it it's a prompt responsiveness it's prompt it says when he cometh and knocketh they may open unto him immediately they may open unto him immediately and so there's an eagerness And a responsiveness to to, to heed the Lord's word, to, to draw near to him, to seek fellowship with him, to not be to not be content with an empty form, an outward husk, just going through the motions. But to want communion and fellowship with Christ in the means that He's appointed for it. We don't want to come to the table of the Lord merely to go through the motions of eating bread and drinking some wine. We want Christ. We want a sight of him and a sense of him and to feed upon him and to receive from him. Our souls nourished by him. And so we're to open to him. Now what do you say? Well, okay, minister, the truth is, pastor, I'm in in Song of Songs 5. I'm not in Luke 12 this afternoon. Truth be told, that's me. I wish you were preaching Song of Songs 5 because that's where I'm at. Do you notice what happens in Song of Song (laughs) 5? She wouldn't respond. She pays for it. Sorely. It's painful. She can't find her beloved. She can't get a sight of him, a sense of him. He seems far away. But even in that, it's the Lord's chastening. He's drawing her. He's bringing her to repentance, isn't he? She's going to him. She's seeking him and calling for him. But she also ends up extolling him. What is all this business? Why are you asking about where your beloved is? Why are you telling us that daughters of Jerusalem say, if we find him to tell him that you're sick of love, to convey that message to him? Why should we do that? What's the big deal? Who is your beloved? Let me tell you. Do you see how our heart's being drawn out? He is the most lovely. He's everything. And there's this description, this vivid description, as she begins to extol Christ, the believer is saying, he is beautiful in every part. His cheeks, his hair, his eyes, everything, his hips and legs and torso, whatever it is, every square inch of him is exquisitely beautiful. He is altogether lovely in his absence. Christ is creating hunger pains in his people for himself. The believer becomes famished. I'm starving to death for a sight and sense of Christ. I've got to have him. If he won't hear me, will somebody please tell him on my behalf? I am lovesick for him. The Lord is bringing her to repentance. He's bringing his people to repentance. He's drawing her out so that her her heart is intensified with a love for him. He's chastening. This is why Hebrews 12 says, "Why, why, why are you a fussy pot when the Lord chastens you, rebukes you, disciplines you, and so on? He says, do not faint. He loveth whom he chasteneth. Actually, if you go back to the Proverbs 3 passage, which is quoted there in Hebrews 12, it says, he delighteth in those he's chastening. He intends good. He's bringing forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. He's saying, therefore, if you could see it, if you could see the chastening, then you would understand why the Lord's saying, don't be weary. Don't faint. Come under the rod because the Lord is at work. He's working underneath all of these things to bring about things that are beautiful. The rebuke produces repentance. That is motivated by love, and it leads you to love him who first loved you. Right? You go to Psalm, places like Psalm 34. The Lord leads his people to cry out to him, crying out to him. Right? We've, that's what's happening in the Psalms. She's crying out for him. And you'll notice in, in Psalm 34, you do, look at it on your own, but the several verses, you know, example would be verse 4, verse 6, verse 17, but there's more than that. And each verse is comprised of the four different words, but comprised of the same four components. The verse begins with crying to the Lord. Secondly, the Lord hears. Thirdly, the Lord delivers. And fourthly, there's a removal of all fears and trouble. This is the Lord's way to draw out his his people. And so here in Revelation 3, he's saying to this church that needs repentance, if any man hear my voice and open the door. To open the door means to swing open and to cling, cleave unto the Lord. Right? This, this language is in that great summary in the Pentateuch of Deuteronomy 10, um, where in verse 12 to the end, we had our kids memorize this because it's a good summary of really biblical religion, but in, it includes in the long list there in verse 20. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, thou shalt, uh, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave. And to him shalt thou cleave. It's to cleave to him, right? It's, it's the language of, of Genesis 2, where a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be made one flesh. Our marriage to Jehovah entails cleaving to him. You have the language of Ruth cleaving to Naomi. You have the language in Job of the bones, uh, skin clinging to the bones. Or in another place, the hand clinging to the sword. Or in Psalm 137, our tongue clinging to the roof of our mouth. And it's all those give you pictures. In Psalm 119, verse 31, it's cleaving to the testimonies of the Lord, right? So it's clinging to him to, to open the door, is to cling to Christ, to be obeying Him and loving Him and walking with Him and fearing Him and serving Him and having a continual thought of Him. Psalm 139 puts it well, verse 17 and 18. How precious also are Thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Right? The thought of God, the sight of Christ, the nearness to the Lord, walking watchfully before him. So there's, there has to be the second component of responsiveness. But then thirdly, there is reception. Thirdly, there is reception. Look back at Revelation 3, verse 20. I will come into him. And will sup with him, and he with me. I will come in and dine with him, if you will. Right, to supper, to dine with him. And he with me. It's interesting, again, that Luke 12 passage. Here they are, loins girded, lights burning, Lord shows up, knocks at the door, they open immediately. And what benefits do they receive? We're told that the Lord comes and makes them sit down. And he serves them. The Lord sits them down and he serves them. No wonder that passage says, Blessed are those servants. Blessed are those servants. Twice. The beginning of verse 37 and at the end of verse 38. Because he girds himself. And makes them to sit down to meet. And comes forth and serves them. Blessed servants. That's an understatement if anything. The most blessed. How incredibly overwhelmingly blessed are such servants. That God Jehovah. The Lord himself would come. And hold audience and fellowship with his own people. And indeed he would be the one to serve them. To gird himself. You have it beautifully pictured as I'm sure all of you are thinking. In John 13. Where the Lord does that very thing. He sits his disciples down. He girds himself. With the basin and the towel. And he washes the feet one by one. Speaking a word in season to them. Showing them. That as Lord He serves them. This is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any loss? What absolute colossal loss there is in not hearing his voice and in not opening the door. Because there's this loss of the prospects of sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ where he comes and dines with us. Not us making a feast for him, but him making a feast for us. Him serving us. Such is His love toward us. You have it at the end of the Song of Songs. In chapter 8, when He describes it in verse 6, Set me as a seal upon thy heart, as a seal upon mine arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly, it would utterly be condemned. Indeed, who can put a price tag on the love of Christ displayed to such a soul? And here is the Lord. He delights to give it. He delights to do it. He delights in this fellowship with his Own people. In Matthew chapter 7, you'll remember in in the Sermon on the Mount itself, the Lord, you know, He's we 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 read about the Lord being slow to anger, we read about the Lord being patient and long-suffering. We read about the Lord being willing to hear the cries of his people when they ask for mercy and turn to him for help. But you go to that Matthew seven passage, and again similar language, and he's saying to his people, if you ask it will be given. If you seek, you will find. Knock, it shall be opened unto you. The Lord's willingness, he delights to give of himself. Right? We come to, we come to the fellowship meal, if you will. Allow me to speak metaphorically. The food is the means of grace in this instance, right? The, we're spiritually feeding our souls, On the thought of God, meditation, prayer, the word, read, preached, sacraments, so on, vows, whatever else. But Christ is the one who comes in them. He's the one that we're seeking. He's the one we're desiring to find. God with us. As we sang in Psalm 46 a little earlier. The Lord in the midst of us. We placed by those rivers which flow from his throne. Why? Because the Lord himself is our portion. I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. It's reciprocal. It's mutual. He, supping with us. Us, supping with him. It's giving and receiving. It's communion. It's fellowship. That's the language. But the Lord himself is our portion. He's not bringing us something else. He's bringing us himself He's bringing us a sense of his presence, a sight of his glory, a savor of his person. This is what's delivered. And so you go to Numbers 18, and he's saying to the Levites, don't think you're a loser. Everybody else is getting a plot of land. I am thy portion, he tells them. I am thine inheritance. You have it in Jeremiah's language in Lamentations 3. The Lord is our portion. We sing it at the end of Psalm 73. The Lord is our portion. We sing it again in Psalm 119 and in the middle of Psalm 16. The Lord Himself is our portion. Our portion is not found in the things of this world. Who cares about sleep? and having gone to bed in the language of song of songs 5 are getting your feet dirty who cares about all of this our portion is not found in this world it is found in the person of the lord jesus christ himself for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever Amen, as, Re- as Romans 11, verse 36 tells us. And so we desire, in the language of, of Jude 21, to be kept in the love of God. We desire to be kept. and You know, the language is guarded, right? Guarding, observing, watching over. We want to be kept in the love of God. We want to maintain communion and fellowship with him, in this world we want in our sins and in the palpable breach of fellowship that that sometimes oftentimes results in we want those things those breaches healed we want that fellowship restored we want nearness we have to live we can't live without it because we can't live without him all of our comforts are found in in the sight and sense of his presence All of our holiness is found in the sight of him and a sense of his presence. We need the Lord to be giving and giving and we receiving and we also giving in terms of thanksgiving and praise and petition and seeking and whatever else. And he's supplying out of the abundance of himself. passage says, I will. So this is a promise. You can bank on it. You can depend upon it. You're guaranteed it. He says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will. I will come into you. I will sup with you. You will dine with me. You will have communion and fellowship with me in these things. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not a maybe. It's not a possibly. It's the Lord's pledge to us. In other words, the Lord is removing everything in your head everything in your path, everything that would prevent you from seeking genuine fellowship with him. Now, having said all of this, and I told you at the beginning, we've ventured into the terrain of explicitly an area of Christian experience. For those of you who are unconverted, all that I'm saying would be utterly foreign to you. You so I hear the words, they're not complicated words, I can understand them, but I know nothing of them. That's because, as I said at the beginning, there is no communion without union. Union comes first. We have to, by the Spirit, through faith, be brought into union with Jesus Christ. You, have, you are in union with your father, Adam. Adam. And left in that state, you'll be sunk into hell. No fellowship in this world or that to come in terms of the gracious presence of Christ. But in the gospel, the Lord has made a way. Every believer who understands anything, even however little, about what it is to have communion with God, has only known that through having come by faith to him. Perhaps hearing the things that you've heard this evening, it has brought to your mind the fact that you are indeed missing out on something humongous. And indeed you are. You're missing out on what is most precious, most priceless, most important in all of the world. But oh, that your appetite being, your interest being piqued, your appetite being wet. The Lord would draw you, that you would say, yes, indeed, I have in my sin cut myself off entirely. And the only way into this fellowship with Christ and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit through Christ is by coming in faith and repentance to turn to him and to lay hold of him by faith and to be made accepted in him And in him alone. But for the Lord's people, there is this prospect, right? There is a bit of heaven, even on earth. If heaven is unending, unsurpassed, limitless fellowship with Christ, then what a wonder that he gives us a foretaste of it in this world. To be kept, watched over, defended, preserved, pursued, as something priceless and precious to us all our days. And so you see Christ's readiness. You see the responsiveness that is called for. And you see the benefits of the warm reception that Christ gives to his own people. May he strengthen and increase fellowship with himself. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, give to us, O God, to understand and to see these beautiful, precious truths. And though we may find ourselves like Laodicea in a deplorable state, draw out our hearts that we, O Lord, would hear the voice of the Bridegroom, and fling open the doors immediately, and cleave to him. O Lord, grant that this communion and fellowship with thee would be increased in our midst, strengthened, inflamed, cause it to flourish for thy glory and the good of thy people, we ask in Jesus' name.